You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. Hello, storytellers. This is the special episode that I promised you, the follow-up to the full-length interview I did with Paul Nadeau. This is his compelling story about how a terrorist saved his life. It needs no intro. It needs no other kind of prologue. All it requires is your open heart, your open mind, and a willingness to challenge your thinking about people and the world. Paul, you said something earlier in the podcast that I cannot get out of my mind. Your life was saved by a terrorist? Yeah, it's, um, you know, in 2005, as I said, I, I went to Jordan and I was on a one-year peacekeeping mission. And uh, what uh, what Canadians or what Canada did during the Iraqi war is we did not send soldiers, we sent educators, we sent trainers uh, to work at the Jordanian International Police Training Center. And uh, I, so I was a teacher for three, uh, for three months, my first three months of the mission. And every eight weeks, 3,000 Iraqi police cadets would be bussed in uh, and brought into the academy to be trained. So we had, uh, you know, cadets that were uh, anywhere from the age of 16 to 60. And some of them were educated, some of them were not. But Iraq was in such desperate need of police officers that they didn't vet all the cadets that were coming. You know, they, they weren't even allowed to, to uh, permit a 16-year-old to come, but, you know, guys would lie, you know, about their age because there was a paycheck attached to the training. And consequently, uh, you know, we were informed and uh, I was told directly by a colonel, an Iraqi colonel, that there were terrorists amongst the students and that their uh, objective at some point would be to kill international instructors. So we were aware of this. Now, as it turns out, you know, I had a class and uh, again, my, my approach to, uh, to the cadets, uh, looking at my 55 students that I would get every, uh, every two weeks because they would rotate every two weeks. So I would meet these, uh, these cadets and I would give a, a heartfelt welcome to them and say, listen, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to share my experiences with you and to teach you some of the things that I've discovered in uh, human relations. Uh, you know, so we were, t- we, we were teaching them about uh, uh, human rights and, and uh, my job was to teach them about criminal investigations. So I would, uh, I would get to know the students, and some of them I, I could tell, you know, were likely uh, activists, and uh, in the middle of the night they would disappear, you know. Um, some of them you couldn't tell. And I remember uh, one, you know, particular experience, and I would get the cadets. We would have a lot of fun in my class. And, uh, you know, 
I, I'm going to fast forward because after the three months of working uh, as an instructor, I applied to become uh, an advocate and a counselor uh, at the academy. And there was only two of us that were doing that job. And I, I was lucky enough to be selected to do it. One cadet came into uh, into the class, <clears throat> sorry, into my office, and he said, um, "There's going to be an attack on the academy. <clears throat> the, uh, you know, the, the, the there's rumblings that it's going to happen very soon. We don't know exactly when it's going to happen." And uh, so I alerted our security, of course, and and uh, they were quite aware that it was coming at some point. But now we had a little bit of a a better idea uh, what it was like now. Every cadet and everybody coming into that academy was searched. So we were quite certain there were no guns. But uh, what had been happening was that the, um, the cadets that were on a mission, uh, you know, on a kill mission, were collecting rocks, sticks, sharpening them up, uh, using whatever weapons they possibly could for this mass, you know, uh, attack. There were 70 two or 73 international instructors and um so you know and i was among among them and so uh, we knew that uh, that they were likely collecting uh some some weapons to be used and on one particular morning i got there uh, rather early with my partner in the advocacy and counseling division and we uh, we had a number of different requests to send some cadets back home that we suspected were either mentally ill or that they were uh, you know suicidal um, and some of them that we suspected might have links to terrorism so we wanted them out of the academy as quickly as possible for their well-being and for the well-being of everybody else and on this particular morning it was uh, the sun was just rising and uh, it just happened to be the day that they, they they came out and the group that surrounded my partner and I in the desert as we were walking back to our building. We had just left uh, the um, uh, the divisional leaders building and we were walking back to ours when we were surrounded by about 40 of these armed insurgent cadets. And uh, my partner, we we were surrounded. You can imagine you're, you're standing in the middle of the desert. You know that there's going to be an imminent attack and you are surrounded by 40 armed, you know, uh, people, uh, men who have connections to terrorism. And some of them are are, are terrorists themselves. Uh, my partner, he was about, uh, oh, God, he was about six foot eight. And he pats me on the head. He says, this is going to hurt, little buddy. And I said, yes, it is. And no sooner did he say that, we got attacked. We started having to fight for our lives. And I'll tell you, you know, the fists were coming. I was getting hit. My partner was getting hit. And I, I was going to go down fighting for my life. All of a sudden, one voice from the back of the crowd started shouting, Mr. Paul, Mr. Paul, Mr. Paul. And then he shouted something else in Arabic. And the attack stopped, Lou. They stopped hitting us. They stopped kicking us and they parted. It's almost like the parting of the Red Sea and they parted. And when I f was able to adjust my focus and take a look and see what was going on and make sense of what was going on because I'd taken a few shots, I saw this one cadet from the back of the crowd walking up to me with the biggest smile on his face. And I looked at him and I recognized him as a student that I had taught a few weeks earlier. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Mr. Paul, you leave. And he pointed towards our, our building. He says, you go now. And that was the only English he could, he could muster up. So I left. And uh, as I said, my partner and I had arrived particularly early that day. 
And so I contacted the security, and the security made sure to alert. Did your partner also leave with you? Yes, we both oh. did. Oh, yes, right yes, oh. yes, oh. of course. Oh, no, no, of course. We both got we both got to go. I would never <laughs> you never leave a soldier behind. You never leave a friend no. behind, you know, no. like I would not have left without my partner. So we both got to leave. And you know what, Lou, we alerted the security. The security were able to alert uh, the uh, the instructors that were coming to the academy. So they were stopped at the gates. And, uh, you know, consequently, nobody was killed that day. Uh, but the insurgents, uh, the ones who were on their mission, they ended up causing about, uh, I think it was $750,000 damage to the uh, to the academy. It was just, it, they destroyed, uh, you know, so many of the buildings and so many of the classrooms and such. And, uh, you know, so it was one of those uh, experiences where, you know, that you, you realize that um, because of the way that I, and I attribute it to the way that I had treated my cadets. And this particular, when I looked at this student, I remember that at first, um, he didn't like me. You know, like, I mean, he was there, but he, he was he was questioning. He was, you know, he was sitting back, you know, like he'd have his arms crossed, you know. But as the classes went on, and I did fun things in the classrooms because I knew that these cadets, they, they were worked. Some of them, uh, you know, I mean, they all had to get up around 4.30 in the morning. They had to do two hours of rigorous exercises. Uh, you know, some of them were not in the best of health. Some of them had, uh, you know, like uh, they were so lonely. They, they were tired by the time they got into my classroom. You're an actor and you can appreciate that as an actor, sometimes you can make your lessons really fun. You know, you can act them out. And I got the students to start acting out the lessons because some of them didn't know how to read or write. So I would teach them how to arrest a person. I'd say, OK, so you're going to be the thief and you're going to be the police officer and you're going to be the witness. And, you know, so I would get them to act out the roles and they had fun doing this and they would even dress up to do this because tomorrow we're go all going to go through the lessons together. So I need my actors. And at the end of the day, I'd take about uh, 45 minutes at the end of the day to get them to sing because, uh, you know, like uh, I, I, I asked and I don't know what what compelled me to do this. I think it was uh, American Idol was uh, was a big thing at the time and Canadian Idol. And so I, I would ask at the end of the day, I say, does anybody here know how to sing? And of course, you know, I've got Sunnis, Shiites and the occasional, you know, or, or, or terrorists in my class. I don't know who is who, uh, except for the Sunnis and Shiites. I didn't know who the terrorists were um, because they, they were disguised as as, uh, as cadets. And then I'd get a few hands raising up saying, yeah, we can sing. And so uh, they would grab empty jugs of, of water, you know, those five-gallon jugs of water, and some of them would drum so beautifully. And the songs, although I didn't understand uh, the words because, uh, you know, my language assistant would uh, would tell me what they meant, and, and uh, but the beautiful singing at the end of the day. So we made uh, – I tried to make that environment as pleasant and fun as possible. And uh, I connected with this particular cadet. I remember him warming up, you know, over the two weeks to me in which he would actually sit and we would chat. I had no idea that he had connections to terrorism, none whatsoever. And, uh, you know, so later when I discovered that it was he who had saved my life, you know, I, uh, I, I just had to, to figure out, you know, why was that choice made? You know, and, and uh, it was one of those times, Lou. Um, I really credit my life, you know, today to that terrorist who saved it. How old was he? He was in his uh, 20s to early 30s. And he was obviously a respected leader among them. Because by yelling a command, they listened. 
and your life was spared. That's what I thought too. And that, that's been my, yep. He led and he was at the back and he didn't see who was being attacked at first. And then when he recognized, yeah, I, I agree with you that he was a leader. And you know what, you know what gets me uh, thinking too, is that um, not everybody wants to be a terrorist. Like they're not all religious fanatics. You know, some people are threatened uh, into terrorism. They, their families are threatened. Uh, some of them, they, they choose terrorism because they're, they're dying and they're desperate and they need food and they, or they need power or they need something. As you said, you know, like we, we were all motivated by our needs or, or, or to be recognized. So there are so many reasons why somebody becomes a terrorist. So I don't know what led this particular cadet, not only to become a terrorist, but, but to become a leader. But I am going to guarantee you that if you go against direct orders that you're given to kill an international and you save that international uh, soldier's life as opposed to taking it. You've got 40 witnesses. They're going to report back to their terrorist cell and say, guess what? He didn't do it. And there's going to be consequences to that. And I know that this cadet suffered consequences on my behalf. His sparing my life may have taken his own. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, when I, whenever I tell that story, Lou, I, I get emotional. I, I really do. I, I told it on my on my TED talk and I, I actually um, actually broke down, uh, you know, in, in a couple of tears as I was thinking, because one of the last thoughts that was going in my mind when I was when I was, you know, getting hit and, and, and fighting for my life was whether or not I was ever going to get to see my daughters again. And, uh, you know, like when I think of the entire story. It, uh, it goes back to the choices we make as a result of the way that we were treated by other individuals. And, and somehow I connected with this one man, with this one terrorist, and he made a life choice on my behalf. And, and uh, I choke up whenever I, I, you know, I think of that story. I really do. It's one of those ones that, uh, that really, um, well, I'm alive. So, uh, Thank you for sharing that, man. It's a, it's a very powerful and important story. And something that I was thinking of earlier. In fact, I started thinking about it when you first told me about your father and the way he treated you and the choices that you ended up making in your life. Are you familiar with a book called Radical Forgiveness? No get it okay Colin tipping okay writing that down now Colin tipping radical forgiveness I would get it as an audiobook because Colin tipping actually is the person who reads it and here's the odd irony the painful irony in in this in the book he talks about different levels of forgiveness. And when you get, you know, most people understand forgiveness, you know, you hurt my feelings, okay, you you apologized, I accept your apology, I forgive you. That's pretty basic. He takes it up many, many notches when he gets to the top level of forgiveness. It's about forgiving someone like Osama bin Laden. And... Mm -hmm taking it a step further, having the strength inside of you to not only forgive him, but to thank him 
for something that he has given you in terms of a lesson. Now, he explains that we forgive or should forgive, not for the other person, but for ourselves so that we can move on in our lives. Yes. Because I have a, a wonderful mentor who says, you know, to hate somebody is the equivalent of drinking poison and thinking it's going to kill the other person. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So, th yeah. So, you do it for yourself. But to have gotten to that level of awareness where you can look at a guy like Osama bin Laden and say, I forgive you and I thank you. And I was thinking of your father in a really perverse way. Your father gave you the most amazing gift because that the way he treated you enabled you to become the guy who is serving the world in the way that you are. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Luke, Matt, you really? That is profound, and it's so true. Wow. Yeah. You, you know what? Yes, he did give me a gift, and I was able to make the right choice with it. Ah, man, Lou, that is profound. That's so true. I am the man I am today because of the way that I was treated as a child oh, man. and the choices that I decide as opposed to falling victim, becoming a victim and, and blaming, you know, and, and we all know that people do this. Hey, you know, I, I ended up hurting people because I was hurt as a child. That's a weak person's way out. Well, let's go back to the guy in Vegas who killed all those people. Yeah. Obviously, this guy was in tremendous pain. And yep. he didn't have an outlet for it that was healthy, so he found another one. Yeah. He ended up murdering what seemed to be, well, it was. It was a senseless, in terms, there's no logical explanation for it, but there's a deep human explanation for it. You're right. The, we'll largest, the largest example of this is uh, Adolf Hitler. In, our, you know, in, in recorded history, as far as we know, Adolf Hitler. Yeah, yeah. Wow. You know, if we had the keys, if we knew the motivations. You do have the keys, man. You've got a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, I do. Are you kidding I me? <laughs> I know, I know. i got to spread it more around, you know, Lou. I, and that's, that's one of my goals is to spread this stuff around, you know. I was hoping, you know what, I was hoping, I was hoping to get my TED Talk to the Prime Minister of Canada and almost got to him. And uh, and for some reason, I was told that that, uh, you know, it, it was blocked. It wasn't blocked. It just wasn't passed on to him because originally uh, my title uh, for my TED talk was finding humanity in terrorism. And, uh, you know, as much as I, I thought that that was a good title, it wasn't to, you know, the the defense people or, or whatever. And they thought, no, finding humanity, there is no humanity in terrorism. And, and we all understand that. But I had to change the title to finding humanity amid global terrorism and, and unrest, you know, or something like that. So I was hoping to get that to him because I think that that message can change the hearts of many people. Okay. Here's what I'm going to tell you now. Okay. <laughs> I like you, Lou. We're at a level right now, my friend, where the entrepreneurs, the visionaries, have the power to save the world 
You are an entrepreneur, Paul, and true entrepreneurs consider the word impossible just an opinion. So, do whatever you can to get that message in front of the Prime Minister. The only barriers are the ones that we accept. Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.